Hey guys, thanks for joining me for the latest episode on Chai with Hasi. I know it's been a while, a one month hiatus if not more, but I am back. As always, remember you can follow this podcast for the latest episodes on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or pretty much anywhere else you get your pods. If you like the pod, please subscribe, rate, and review. It really goes a long way for me. Before we begin, I would like a kind reminder to you all to please vote. Early voting is going on right now, so please read up on the issues, find out where you can vote early. Honestly, I didn't know where you typically vote may not be open for early voting, so please make sure you check that all out before going out. If you check the news, one of the most common topics, especially this close to an election, is wealth inequality in the United States specifically between African-American and white families. In today's pod, we'll investigate redlining. It impacts how schools are funded and even the type of health care one receives. Before we dive into what exactly is redlining, let's talk about wealth. The United States is the wealthiest country in the world. In fact, if you make $50,000 in the United States, you're already at the 60th percentile of the U.S., meaning that you make more than 60% of the people in the United States. And that also translates to being the top 1% in the world. But in the United States, the number one contributor to wealth is home ownership. And wealth, my friends, creates wealth. This is attributed to the idea of compounding interest, as I learned in my MBA class. Let's imagine that your grandparents owned a home worth $20,000 in 1950. And let's assume it appreciated at a modest 3% per year. In 2020, 70 years later, that home would be worth $160,000. And more importantly, it would be passed down generation to generation. Net wealth is a term that I'll be using a lot, so let's go ahead and define it. Net wealth is simply assets minus debts. Assets reflects financial and tangible assets. So financial assets would be uh, things that we think about every day, your savings account, checkings account, stocks, 401k. Tangible assets are like one's home, one's car. Uh, So that's on the asset side. On the debt side of the equation, it's student loan debt, car loans, mortgages. So again, net wealth is simply assets minus debts. About 50 years ago, the average black family had one-sixth the net wealth than the average white family. So what do you think happened 50 years later? Well, unfortunately, that gap increased. It is now black family net wealth is one-tenth of the average white family. And a lot of this is explained in home ownership. Now, specifically for the American middle class, home equity accounts for about two-thirds of their net wealth. The gap between black and white home ownership now in the United States is 30%, larger than it was in 1968. In fact, the African-American population in the U.S. is about 13%, but their ownership of its wealth is only 3%. There are some cities like Boston, in fact, where the median net wealth of the African-American family is $8. One in every four black families has either zero or negative net wealth. So this 
obviously means something is wrong. Now, you may be wondering, man, this is awful, but what does this have to do with the title of today's pod, Redlining? As you'll see, redlining was a discriminatory practice that prevented certain minorities from obtaining mortgages or even moving into predominantly white neighborhoods, which prevented those families from owning homes, which in America, again, is the key driver of wealth. And this practice was not outlawed too long ago. In fact, in 1968, and its effects can still be seen to this day. So let's go for a deep dive into redlining's history and its precursor racial covenants. See, in the early 1900s, at least in my mental model, you I always thought that the South was only full of racism. But that was wrong. Racial discrimination definitely occurred in the South, but there's also a lot that happened in the North. The South had Jim Crow, but the North, they had racial covenants, which essentially became the foundation of racial segregation in the North. These covenants would essentially say that people of certain races, i.e. anyone who wasn't white or from Western Europe, they could not live in this neighborhood. So it pretty much excluded anyone who was black, African, Asian, Jewish, East European, pretty much anyone who wasn't of the desirable races uh, from owning, renting, or even occupying a home. The Supreme Court in 1926 even said that these racial covenants were constitutional in Corrigan v. Buckley, which essentially validated racial segregation. And again, these practices did not start in the South. Racial covenants started in the North, in cities like Chicago and Minneapolis. But shortly after the Buckley decision in 1926, came the Great Crash of 1929, which really started the onset of economic depression. And by the summer of 1933, about half of the mortgages in the nation were in default. And this is where President Franklin D. Roosevelt, FDR, was really trying to find a way to help stabilize the housing market, which was just completely erratic at this point. And he really wanted to stop foreclosures on family homes which would obviously lead to just unimaginable consequences. So in 1934, he pushed and supported a piece of legislation that was called the Fair Housing Act, which created the FHA, the Federal Housing Administration. And ultimately what this did is it shifted the risk of a loan defaulting from the banks to the federal government by providing guarantees of repayment from the government to these mortgage issuers if they followed certain federal guidelines. One of these guidelines we still see today, the 30-year loan with a fixed interest rate. So essentially, the government acted some kind of as a uh, insurance policy for the mortgage lenders. Around the same time, the Hulk, or Homeowners Loan Corporation, created a set of maps that were intended to identify areas that were at risk of going into foreclosure and where the government would go into these areas and try to stabilize mortgage lending by 
purchasing these loans that were about to go default and then provide better terms to the loan holder. In 1934, the chief economist of the FHA, uh, Homer Hall, what he did is he took these maps that were created by Hulk and he created a system to evaluate real estate based off of, of all things ethnicity and based it on the premise of eugenics, which followed the idea of desirable races. So the chief economist took the Hulk maps, but added the layer of race on top. And you may be wondering, why is that important? See, the the problem is, is that these combined maps, it didn't look at income. It did not look at average education. It literally looked at who lived in these neighborhoods, what was the ethnic composition of these neighborhoods, which made them either desirable or non-desirable. And I'm not just making this up. The FHA manual at the time had explicitly written that the ethnic composition of a neighborhood is a part of the underwriting process and that the FHA did not want to invest in communities with undesirable minorities. So similar to the practice of racial covenants, there were desirable and non-desirable races. So what were the desirable races? And we actually know what they were because of documentation. And at the top of the pyramid, we have the English, German, Scandinavians. Middle of the pyramid were the North Italians, Polish. And the bottom was pretty much everyone else. Uh, African-Americans, Mexicans, South Italians. And if you had a community that was racially diverse, meaning that you had both uh, white and Hispanic and Mexican and black families living in the same neighborhood, that neighborhood would have a bad rating from the FHA. How did they classify these different neighborhoods? So what the FHA did is they went to... 239 cities across the nation and they had these color-coded maps that would categorize neighborhoods a through d and give it an associated color the best areas were colored green and given the letter assignment of a this next best area was b and was colored blue then third was c colored yellow and then lastly, the bottom of the barrel, according to these maps, the least desirable areas were ranked D or colored red. And that's why the practice is called redlining. And you can actually look this up for all 239 cities. You can look it up for, you know, my hometown of Tulsa to Houston, Boston, uh, for, oh, yeah, over 200 cities. It's just a Google search away. So now we have these maps that have been color-coded. And again, they're not based off of income or education or uh, the ability to pay back a loan. It's heavily, heavily weighted on the fact of what the ethnic composition of a certain neighborhood is. Very heavily weighted on race. So at the end, you have these city maps that are characterized by these four colors. And just to further illustrate the role that race had in creating these maps, which would be used to see whether or not loan would be backed up by insurance provided by the government, is that the best area, three green areas with the designation letter A, would not be given that designation 
if it did not have restrictive racial covenants in place. And again, that is from the FHA manual. And to further illustrate how these maps were literally based off of racial premises and concepts such as eugenics, if you were to look at B, C, and D neighborhoods, outside of ethnic composition, there was really no difference. But after the maps were created, there were immediate consequences and changes that were really, really apparent. So let's take the city of Baltimore, for example. There was no difference in private mortgage lending practices in B, C, and D areas. However, once these maps were created in 1937, we saw private mortgage lending increase in B, stay flat in C, and drop sharply in D. And remember, D are the areas that were redlined, that were composed of minorities. The FHA essentially banned any kind of federal lending in D neighborhoods, and private lenders followed suit. And some redlining validated the invisible effect of racial covenants all over the country. And what's crazy is that this practice of redlining was full into effect even after the Civil Rights Act of 1964, and only stopped after Martin Luther King Jr. was murdered in 1968, where Congress consequently passed the Fair Housing Act of 1968, which prohibited the discrimination in the sale or financing of home based off of race or religion. So at least on paper, redlining had officially, and I'm using air quotes, but this is a pause so you can't see it, after 30 plus years. But in those 30 plus years, the FHA offered $120 billion in loans, of which 98% were given to white borrowers. By the time the Fair Housing Act had passed, many of the homes that were first built by loans provided by the FHA had quadrupled in value. So let's take a look in the 1950s. The median price was $18,000. Adjusted for inflation now, that's $175,000. Research done by California community builders have found that these FHA VA loans equate to $3 trillion in current real estate value today. So now let's take it a step further and assume that once the mortgage was paid off, that funds were used to invest in stocks. Uh, this study is saying that you would have created an additional $2 trillion. In large part, due to these government loans, the U.S. saw the greatest growth in the middle class in the history of the world. So conservatively, these loans provided by the FHA translated to conservatively 3 to $5 trillion in wealth today. So what did people do with all of these loans? Well, actually, a lot of people built new homes out in the suburbs. The FHA valuations were done in such a way that the older your home was and the closer you are to minorities, the less valuable your home was determined. So it actually encouraged movement out to newly constructed suburbs, which gave rise to the term white flight. Just a reminder, minorities were literally not allowed to move into the suburbs 
because of the covenants of the neighborhoods and mortgage applications simply would not be approved for black families wanting to live in areas that were not designated red line. Contrast that if you were in a black neighborhood or had minority neighbors, you wouldn't get a loan from private lender. You certainly wouldn't get it from the federal agency. So buildings and communities literally started to fall apart which further plummeted the value of existing homes in C and D areas. City planning actually started to move resources away from redlined communities, so things such as even getting fresh vegetables or even visiting a doctor became a lot harder. In fact, today, your zip code is a better predictor of your health outcome than your genetic code, which definitely means something is wrong. One could argue, incorrectly, that redlining was so long ago and we've come a long way from that. You're kind of right. But that observation is also, at the same time, kind of ignorant of the reality that even after 50 years of passing the Fair Housing Act of 1968, the effects are still seen today. A 2017 study found that 74% of the areas that were redlined almost 90 years ago in 1930, are low income today. In contrast that with 91% of the green areas identified in 1930s are upper income and mostly white. To this day, its effects are very, very real. And again, prior to these maps being published, things were pretty similar between B, C, and D neighborhoods. It's only after these maps came out, after mortgage companies started to use these maps to prevent loans going to certain groups versus others, did those areas start to deteriorate. But hey, you know, the 1990s was a good time for everyone, right? I mean, the 1990s did have an economic boom and banks did start to see an opportunity to get African-American families in the housing market. This is a fact. But unfortunately, African-American homeowners were not given the same type of loans that their white counterparts were. This is where you hear the term of subprime loans a lot, which start off cheap, but then get more and more expensive over time. 20% of all black borrowers with good credit scores were given a subprime loan. By 2004, nearly half of African-American families owned a home. But when the financial crisis hit in 2008, the black community lost 53% of their wealth. Actually, everyone lost a lot of wealth. Uh, White families lost on average 16% of their wealth. And the biggest difference between the two groups is largely attributed to the terms of the mortgage. In this case, black families had subprime loans with extremely unfavorable uh, conditions, which definitely did not help them out. In fact, there were a lot of banks that were sued immediately after 2008 because of their predatory and discriminatory practices that they had towards black families. For example, Wells Fargo agreed to settle, again, I'm using air quotes because you can't see it, to pay $175 million in damages without admitting a single word of guilt. It's uh, quite a bit to pay for not doing something wrong. Honestly, this practice just doesn't exist solely in the mortgage market, but if you were to extend it 
you could probably say it ex- exists in the entire financial system as well. Minority neighborhoods are underbanked, which simply means they do not have sufficient access to mainstream financial services. Predominantly in Black and Hispanic communities, uh, you will see some other financial alternative service that, uh, if you're lucky, charge 20% interest. Or worse, you'll find these payday loans that charge 500% interest. Obviously, these rates are much higher than uh, what a typical bank would offer. And, you know, there's also a story behind this as well about African Americans and their lack of access to standard banks. Shortly after the end of the Civil War, after President Johnson became president, Uh, Due to President Lincoln's assassination, there was the establishment of the Freeman's Savings Bank. Now, this wasn't a bank because a bank makes money by making loans and charging interest. This establishment didn't do that. Essentially, what it did is it created a bunch of savings accounts and stored former slaves, now freed individuals, their money. So it was a piggy bank. But the president of the bank, Henry Cook, took the money in the Freeman's savings bank and put it in his brother's railroad ventures. And guess what happened? The entire thing collapsed. The now freed African-Americans lost 60% of their deposits, which in today's value is worth $750 million. And we must remember that these folks, they didn't have a smooth transition outside of slavery. Absolutely not. A lot of them became sharecroppers, and they didn't make much of anything, if at all. And all of a sudden, they lost half of their savings. And it's no surprise that that bank, the Freedmen's Savings Bank, went under in 10 years after it first opened. And scholars now contend that the failure of the Freedmen's Bank and the loss of the savings led to distrust for all banking institutions for many, many generations. And honestly, who can blame them? This practice of denying minority access to banks has existed for a long, long time. In fact, Italians started the Bank of Italy because they were excluded to access to normal banks. And that Bank of Italy actually becomes the Bank of California, which then combines with other banks and then forms the Bank of America. Just an interesting tidbit there. So up until this point, we've discovered how, or discussed rather, how certain groups were denied not only access to traditional mortgages, but denied access to standard banks. But the counter argument is education could save this, right? Education solves everything. But unfortunately, it's not that simple. Even when comparing African-American families with higher education and higher income to white families that have less education and less income, they still have less family wealth. A study shared by the Survey of Consumer Finances showed that even if you assume black and white families have the same education, you decrease the wealth gap minimally. Surprising, right? The city of St. Louis actually followed black and white college graduates and found that white graduates saw a dramatic increase in wealth once they graduated. But 
their black classmates, their net wealth actually decreased. And this isn't because of the type of jobs that they got outside of graduations or their starting salaries. That was all normalized. It is because of the phenomena that has been coined the black tax. An African-American college graduate is many times the most successful in their family network. And if someone needs financial help, many, many times they give it. Whereas in white families, if there is a college graduate, uh, many times people don't come to them for help because already their network, their family is relatively financially stable. They have a lot of family members who've already graduated from college. So that need isn't really there. So even if one gets an education and gets a great job, you're not out of the woods yet. So hopefully I've been able to convey that home ownership and even access to banking is not just important. It's essentially synonymous with the American dream to ensure a better life, not just for you, but for your kids and future generations as well. But as I was researching the topic, I came across this one historical event that really could have changed the future of millions of African Americans that is honestly lost to time. And that is Field Order Number 15. Towards the end of the Civil War in January 1865, Union General Sherman met with black leaders, mostly ministers, in the South and asked them how he and the government could help the former slaves start their new lives. The ministers were smart. They responded that the ability to own land would be a huge help with their new lives and their newfound freedom. And the sentiment was shared with President Lincoln, and he approved Field Order 15, which set aside hundreds of thousands of acres of land confiscated from South Carolina to Florida, which granted no more than 40 acres of farmable land to each black family. General Sherman even ordered the army to lend its mules to help accelerate the rebuilding efforts which eventually led to the motto of 40 acres in a mule. This order served several functions. First, it settled 40,000 black refugees because of the war, and it punished the Confederate Rice Coast for their role in starting the war by having their lands confiscated. But later in April 1865, tragically, President Lincoln was killed, and his vice president, Andrew Johnson, assumed the presidency. And within months, President Johnson quickly reversed field order number 15, granted lands back to the original landowners and leaving the newly freed black refugees without any protection, many of which returned back to the fields as sharecroppers. We have to also understand that uh, President Johnson, he's from the South or he was from the South and uh, he's actually the only senator from the South who did not leave after the Civil War. Um, but when he saw all of these legislative actions or field orders going into effect, uh, he thought they were discriminatory towards white people in favor of black people. And obviously he was completely ignorant and oblivious to the fact that black slaves created wealth for white people for over 250 years at that point. Uh, and also to add a little bit of color, President Johnson was the president who also opposed the 14th Amendment, which gave citizenship to former slaves. 
So with that in mind, all of this is not a complete shocker. Naturally, you would ask, why did President Lincoln have President Johnson or Vice President at the time, Johnson be his running mate? President Lincoln wanted to go with an image of unity. So that's why he had the only senator from the South who didn't leave after the Civil War be his running mate. But, you know, when you think of this event, it it's just hard to think, man, how would the South look different if President Johnson hadn't reversed ship on Field Order 15? I mean, at least how things might have looked different for those 40,000 uh, newly uh, freed people. So we've talked about a lot of things, racial covenants, redlining, banking. So it's natural to ask, what can we do about it? The challenge is certainly daunting, and it's to understand the true gravity of the situation, we objectively have to take a step back and look at the problem. Suppose that we had a magical wand, and we could eliminate discrimination, and try to get rough equality of wealth across races. Studies shows that it would take seven generations, or 200 years, for that to happen. That's insane. A lot of people say that in light of recent events that preserving the status quo which ensures a stable government is the utmost priority of any society. But we must ask, is the status quo good? In certain respects, it probably isn't. Because the status quo definitely does not serve some groups. And sticking to the status quo will at best maintain the current wealth gap and that isn't a good thing. This isn't to suggest any radical change to the system, but to explore ways to help those who have been historically left behind. And if you look at arguments from both sides in the spectrum, which I believe a lot of them have merit from both sides, voucher school programs which would focus on school choice, others contend that reparation payments are necessary, but there's one thing that both sides agree on, and that is the status quo must change. In many ways, we as a society have made large strides and had great progress. But there's still a lot of work to be done. The perpetual cycle of poverty is real. The racial wealth inequality gap is real. So we really do need to work together to figure out uh, common sense solutions to make this all work. It's no surprise that MLK had written back in 1964 that if a man enters the starting line of a race 300 years after another man, he must do some extraordinary feat to catch up with his fellow runner. Now, I'm not sure exactly what the solution is, but my hope is, is that by listening to this pod, that we start having these conversations to figure out how we can make it a more equal playing field for all parties involved. Thanks guys for listening to this pod. There were a lot of great resources that I used and as always I will add those sources in the pod notes. Again, please remember to vote and if you like the pod, please rate, review and subscribe. Take care, stay safe. Till next time. Bye.